The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state and national politics and the real issues that really matter. You too can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner Program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes our roundtable regulars on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Good morning, Paul. Morning. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, Tom. And joining us today, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Hi guys. Bobby. I, morning, feeling Bobby. Pretty, feeling pretty mellow today. I might not be too hard on you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, <laughs> that's that's appropriate for uh, we always start out with some quotes and uh, 
Bobby's comment was uh, appropriate as a uh, setup for this first one, the finish the quote, where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? And it goes like this, perpetual optimism is what? Mm. A dying art. A dangerous practice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Is not realistic. Well, um, uh, the original uh, uh, person who made that remark would beg to differ. The original quote is, Perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. Oh. Hmm. Who do you think might have said that? Um, Someone in the 30s. No, it was more contemporary than that, uh, Henry. That was uh, Colin Powell. Oh, oh, oh yeah. yeah. You know, he really was an optimist, wasn't he? That's true. Yes, he was. Yeah, a good man. guy. Yeah, it, um, I, I, I just thought, what a, what a great way to remember Colin Powell is for that quote. That's true, yeah. Uh Yeah, I always admired him uh, because I felt he was very good at analyzing situations and um, coming down on the side of the best decision. Now, he didn't always make the best decision, but he was pretty close almost all the time. You know, I always thought that if he had actually run for president, that he probably could have been the first African-American president if if he had done it. And I agree with that. I agree with both of you. Well, <laughs> Colin Powell was always uh, a person that I admired as a Republican. He was good at what he did. He was forthright. He tried to work with both sides when the time uh, allowed it. And he tried to solve Americans' problems in abroad. Well, yeah, yeah, but you know what, Henry? I don't really think he displayed his partisanship in his no, work. He did. No, he didn't, and and that's always a that's a strong point too. If you don't have to go out and broadcast and be the only guy on the block that's saving the world from a dragon or whatever, yeah. you know, which is unbelievable rhetoric. Couple but of Colin Powell hit was right in the middle of all of that. A couple things in the in the media recently, as uh, different elected officials and pundits and so on have been remembering him, is of course the. Uh, uh, testimony he gave or, or the comments he made at the UN uh, right. supporting the, the search for weapons of mass destruction, which turned out not to be there. And I think it's unfortunate that that makes it into his, <clears throat> his legacy. Because, and, and the other thing that the media has done, which I find interesting, is referred to him as the first black Secretary of State, the first black. Uh, Mm. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and did not use the phrase African-American because technically he's not. Um, His family came from Jamaica. That's right, that's right. That's right, although they got to Jamaica from Africa. Well, that's probably true. The African has to be part of it, though. Speaking of of the the, uh, memorials to him, did anybody see that incredible thing that Trump said about him? Yes, I mean, I just—it was astonishing. I mean, no, I'm—I missed it. I, oh, it was catch me up. Uh, I, I, I don't have a rhino. 
I mean, he, he, he attacked him as a rhino. He said he was a loser. Uh, he, he sort of half-heartedly offered some sympathy towards the end, but it was just a bizarre, you know, you know in terms of these plaudits <clears throat> after somebody passes away, you expect some positive things, but just a bizarre kind of statement out of yeah, Trump that, that I saw on Facebook the other day. I don't, I don't think that uh, Trump did anything differently than he would have done for anybody else. That's no, probably no, right. you're probably right, Henry. You're probably that's, right there. That's Trump's style. So he yeah. didn't. Uh, I hope people don't s- separate this out as a racial circumstance. But it is oh not. no, no, no. Trump would call me or call you, Tom, or you, uh, anybody around the on the round table. Same I, thing. Yeah, I no, so, I don't think uh, I. I wouldn't have taken it as um, based in race in in any way. I, if anything, it had more to do with the fact that at the time. Uh, Donald Trump, then private citizen Trump, was uh, uh, claiming that Barack Obama had, you know, hadn't been born in the United States, and you know, going right. on and on about providing his birth certificate. Colin Powell endorsed him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, I, think I think it had more, more to do with that, Henry, than anything else. I think that's yeah. true. Yeah, but say it just you know, whenever when both Republicans or Democrats are saying all these positive things about Powell. <laughs> For this thing to come out, it just came off as a bizarre statement. Well, and, and the other thing I would like to say about Powell, there are th- several people that I think uh, are really great storytellers. Powell is one of them. I heard him in Atlanta when I went to a National School Boards Association, and uh, he had the. And by the way, that was the the uh, event that I went to where they had the American flag on the right side of the stage facing the stage instead of the left side, and I had to point it out to someone quickly, quietly. But I remember <laughs> that. And Colin Powell got up, and he told some great stories, I, which I thought were really, really good. Hmm. Well, he certainly rose to some positions where he, he could collect some great stories. Um, let's, uh, let's move on. I want to squeeze another quote in here, uh, one that caught my attention. It's an institution that's fallible, though over time it has served this country pretty well. Uh, the, the um, well, that would be the government. Uh, the I'm going to think Supreme the Supreme Court, Court the but Supreme I'm not sure who. Yeah. No, nope, you're, yeah. you're you're close. Uh, yeah. uh, both of you actually. Uh, that was Justice Stephen Breyer. He's not giving up on the Supreme Court. In a wide-ranging interview with CNN last Wednesday, the senior senior liberal justice expressed caution about some of the ideas raised before the presidential commission studying the Supreme Court, asserting the, the importance of people accepting rulings they dislike and insisting that despite the discord seen recently in opinions, uh, the justices get along. Um is the is scotus is scotus's credibility waning well i think the the, the credibility of almost every institution is waning i mean uh, unfortunately that's uh, not not just the supreme court but i think after <clears> the <throat> gore the gore gore bush decision that didn't help and then well, the, just the appointment process of the last decade or so has also been pretty messy too but but i, I think I it's happened with most institutions I don't. I don't think it's waning. I think it's growing. It's. It was able to live thirty years with uh, Thomas, or Justice Thomas, on the board. Never an incident of criticism 
that affected, uh, uh, you know, ethnicity or anything like that. I think the court has shown and demonstrated that it it uh, serves its purpose to evaluate the law between the legislature and the executive branch. And it's done a great job of that. That's its job. Well, well you know, um, I have an opinion on that, of course. Uh, I think we see a more partisanship uh, attributed to the Supreme Court now. And there's a part of me that wants to say that's new. But then I go back to some of the Supreme Courts in the past, and it's certain that bias came into uh, some of the decisions, some of the really awful decisions that were handed down. So, and then look at what Roosevelt did in trying to pack this, the court in order right. to get it to move. And so I think the partisanship question is always there and always will be, and we have to be aware of it. I agree with you. That's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yes, I well, hopefully I'll have some time to squeeze uh, this one in. We just have a couple of minutes. But I think the first and most important reason is that the problems we identified back in 2016 haven't gone away and arguably have actually got worse. And I thought it was important to come and set the record straight. Hmm. I don't know if you'll... That was not bad. No, that was not bad He's no, on the other side. no, that oh. was uh, former British intelligence officer Christopher yeah. Steele, oh, the man behind yeah. the Steele dossier yeah. that claimed Russian yeah. officials held compromising information on former President Donald Trump. He defended the claims made in the dossier uh, on his first on-camera interview since it was revealed in 2017. In a clip from uh, ABC News uh, documentary that was released Sunday, Steele said he decided to sit down for an interview now because he wanted to set the record straight about his role in the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. ABC released a portion of the uh, documentary featuring parts of Steele's interview on Sunday with the full documentary slated to be released uh, on Hulu early Monday morning. How credible is Steele and the dossier named after him? That depends on where you sit. I think... Um, <laughs> That's true. I think, <laughs> I think we can watch that now on Netflix. I believe I saw that we can watch the interview. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've raised some doubts about the more salacious parts of that, of that dossier. And whether that impinges the credibility of the rest of it, I don't know. But, uh, well, uh, according to a clip I saw, uh, Steele said he wasn't unsure about that. Yeah, uh, yeah I think. But I, I also, I also read an article comparing him to James Bond. So you know. It was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess I should have said Steele, Christopher Steele. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Right. We need to take a short break, but uh, we'll have more armchair politics uh, coming up straight ahead. Uh, but first, we're going to let our broadcast partners at WFOV, Our Voices Radio 92.1 LPFM in Flint, squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House, Spectacle Productions, and my friend Paul Herring. And uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. There's more armchair politics straight ahead. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show and welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Bobby Clayton Walton. Um, former U.S. Representative Dale Kildee, a pro-union Democrat who represented the Flint area in Congress for 36 years and made education policy a special interest of his, died Wednesday at age 92. His death was announced by his nephew, U.S. Representative Dan Kildee, Democrat from Flint Township, who won the seat his uncle had held after the elder Kildee did not run in 2012. Any uh, any comments or thoughts? <coughs> well, I remember when Dan announced that he was running, and I thought uh, he had a good he had a good opportunity not only because of his own. Uh, his own curriculum, what he had done, but because of the name recognition. Um, but I think he's been an excellent congressman to replace Dale, who I understand was also excellent. I never really got to know him well, but I did get to talk to him a couple of times, and we discussed the places where we didn't always agree. Yeah, so, he, you know, I Dale was a solid guy. I, I, I can't say I knew him well, but I certainly knew him from a lot of campaigns, and he was at every Democratic state convention that's in the last 30 years and uh as i say he spoke he spoke well for the district when he was here he was the voice of the district and every even even a republican said he was a gentleman all the way along for this whole career you know i remember dale really well i knew dale well <clears throat> i served on the staff at general motors corporation and once the, the, they were dedicating the ponds for the um environmental ponds that needed a flag to have, that had flown over uh, the capital of the United States, and the staff wanted that there. So I contacted Dale Kildee in Washington, and he provided that flag so that that dedication could go off without a glitch. I also knew Dale Kildee. Every one of my family members who have died Dale Kildee came to the funeral. He was well-respected in my family. And I also remember Dale Kildee as helping to provide money to get Hamilton Community Health Network started. He, he got right. found sources of money to pour into that Hamilton Community Health Network. And we're so grateful that, for that. And while many would look at this as ingratiating a person of the opposite party, I think it shows class, and it shows the truth, and it shows that we're better than we think we are. That's true, Henry, and, and I, I think I've, from so many tributes I've seen from, from Dale, many came from Republicans who said similar kind of things. He was the kind of guy who could reach across the aisle very effectively. Yeah. Um, you know what that means to me is that he really cared about his constituents, and he didn't isolate the ones who voted for him and were of his party from the ones who did not. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, in terms of some of his accomplishments here, the building on the Mott campus, one of the, it's called the Dale Kildee White Building because it works for workforce development. 
and he, he was instrumental in bringing federal funds for that, at least part of that, that project. Well, I remember Dale going way back. I, I can't remember for sure. I, I think he uh, served on the um, Flint City Council before going to the state legislature. Before he, he became was in the state, ha- state House and State Senate for, before he went to the, to the Congress. Yeah, he was, and, and I remember that because I remember him coming into a couple of restaurants back in the days when I was playing music full-time, and Dale oh. came in, and, and we visited a number of times. And then, of course, after he went to Congress, I visited him once in Washington, and um, we had lunch together a couple times. And he's been on the show a few times, and I thought it would it might be nice... Uh, just in a way of uh, remembering him a little bit, I, I played this uh, this little clip that we're going to hear next um, last Thursday when I first got the news. But here's here's Dale Kildee in his own words. I think there is an anger out there, Tom, but I think the anger really emanates, starts from a broken heart. A lot of Americans really are brokenhearted what's happening in the country that we're getting deeper and deeper into debt. I've talked to these people and you know, they they love this country like you and I love this country. And I think they're brokenhearted over some of the things that are happening and uh, broken hearts can very often lead to anger. And uh, this has happened before in this country. Uh, and I think it, uh, it gets the attention of those to whom uh, attention should be brought. But uh, I think Ultimately, I think it would be better to cool the rhetoric but, but, but keep the strong feelings that our country has to do better in the way it uh, raises money and spends that money. And that's what they're concerned about. That was uh, then-Congressman Dale Kildee. That was from June of 2010, and those words really struck me as, as being even more true today. I think so, yeah. It reminds me, Kildee did speak in my class a couple of times. Uh, he's always glad to come by and say a few words of what was going on in Congress, so he did that a few times. And I did come across an interesting Kildee story. when I was, Some years ago, when I was working on the history of, of Mott College, I was going through some old yearbooks uh, of Central High School, and there's a photo there. Kildee taught Latin at Central High School way back when, before he got involved, before he ran for office. And there's a picture of Kildee as the sponsor for the, uh, I presume, the Central High School Latin Club, uh, dressed in a toga as they had one of their <laughs> their final <laughs> events of the year. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, thinking about Dale, you know, a person who could not recognize excellent qualities in ambassadorships, uh, which Dale was also an ambassador for the city of Flint. Washington, um, you if you cannot recognize it in this man and his behavior, his character, and his actions, you cannot recognize a, a Republican with equal qualities because they have the same demeanor, they have the same qualities. And by being able to recognize Dale Kelsey as a person of great character and accomplishment, I couldn't very well recognize good. Republicans, either, because, yeah, you know, and I think that people, you know, there are some crappy people in in Congress, and we know that they're there, and they're not all one party or the other. They're terrible people that's serving, and and, and somehow we 
we let them get away because of their partisanship. But, you know, I just want to, and I'll always say this about Dale. I've gone to Dale fundraisers as well. And, uh, and I was well received by them. Nobody kicked me out. Nobody had any negative things to say. And I always met Dale every, uh, every summer or every spring in Washington, D.C. to support health care issues for Hamilton Community Health Net work and also for the underserved people of this country. And he was always so ingratiating. The end. All right, let's let's uh, let's move on. Mayor Sheldon Neely wants appointees, department heads, and other employees to leave city council meetings at 9 p.m., saying it's unreasonable to expect them to work their regular jobs during the day, in addition to council meetings that routinely last seven hours or longer. In May 2020, the mayor said uh, city department heads could be excused from council meetings after 9 p.m. In a news release uh, last Wednesday, he said uh, city administrator Clyde Edwards will now directly excuse department heads and other employees at that time. Marathon virtual council sessions have become common in City Hall and personal disputes between members have often spilled into meetings. Members regularly criticize their colleagues, have accused each other of racism, and spend long periods of time debating council rules, making points of order, and appealing decisions made by the chairperson. Um, and maybe they need to hear those words from Dale Kildee. But uh, yeah. <laughs> can, can this have any impact on the council becoming more deliberative and less confrontational? Maybe well, I think uh, the, 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 the separation of the powers and authority, the mayor is, uh, is rising. The re- mayor is becoming a strong mayor. And uh, that's very good since the council can't control itself. Its, uh, its behavior doesn't demonstrate exhibiting good self-control then the superior part of the government has to take over because there's this back and forth between the mayor and the council. And I think the mayor is doing a great job. I hope he can make it work. I hope he has the fortitude to, to keep the pressure on there. And the, and the council will change, perhaps. And I, I have some sympathy for the, for the workers, too. I mean, <clears throat> if you're stuck in a council meeting until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, how are you going to do a good job when you've got to be back at work at 8 o'clock the next morning and run your department or deliver whatever services you're delivering? So uh, in terms of just the functioning of the city, those meetings were just getting, and still are in many ways, absurdly long. So, yeah, I have sympathy not only for the council members, but for those who have to take minutes uh, of these meetings, uh, and even the council members. How, how do you make a rational decision if you've been sitting through a meeting eight or ten hours. I mean, it just, uh, I'm not sure anybody can, can pay attention that that long. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a- I look at it as, uh, as an administrative uh, function also, because you have the administration, which is the mayor's side, and then you have the legislative side, which is the city council. And right now the city council is taking advantage of the administrative side. And I also wondered if the people who uh, work for the mayor who have been staying there, do they get paid overtime even if they are staffers that are on salary? I don't believe they do. Which is even worse because now they're being misused. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and I agree. I, I think we're on the same side. We're on the same page. I think you pretty much said what I agree with. But can that kind of, uh, you know, public foot down position by the by the mayor saying, you know, I'm not going to make my staff sit through this. Um, does that send any kind of signal to the council? Is, is there well, something in that that might cause them to say, you know, people have been talking bad about us, and now people won't even stay for the meetings. Maybe we ought to get this under control. You're right. Uh, the, the only thing I got, I think the, the meeting on Monday was described, at least one story I saw, as a bit more civilized than most, and although it did go till about 10 o'clock or beyond. Wasn't wasn't until two and three in the morning though, but I, I guess they accomplished a little more than they sometimes do. I tuned into it for a short time, and it sounded like it was still the same bickering I'd heard so much of the time. But at least one, one news story I saw covering the Monday meeting described it as a a bit more civilized and a little more accomplishment than they normally have. But as I say, even then it started. I think it started at four thirty and went till about ten o'clock or thereabouts. Well, don't I think you think it's if the mayor, it calls for more cohesion among the members of the of the council in order for them to react to what the mayor has done. And I don't know. I wouldn't make any bets on that one. Yeah, yeah. If the mayor prevails in this circumstance, it will depend on what the rules say, what the charter says, uh, whether the mayor can exercise this kind of authority. And if not, then they need to change uh, the rules. You need to go consult with the governor or make a court case out. Yes, that has not been tested. If someone sues the mayor, if the, if the mayor does this and he gets sued and is tested by the Supreme Court, then only then we will know whether this will work. That's exactly what we need is another lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I'm unfortunate. You might think this is funny, but that's the only way that some things get settled. True. And we yeah. forever. No, Henry, I, I, I think we think it's funny because it's true. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it, it is probably going to end up being a court battle. But I think at the end of the day, I don't think the charter requires salaried staff people that work for the mayor to stay until the wee hours of the morning. And, See, there it is. And you, I don't you think, reason it out, and it makes sense. And, and I don't think a court is going to uh, rule against the mayor's uh, administrative position that my people leave at 9 o'clock. Yeah, well, I think that's entirely reasonable. It you know, worth it. Of course, the other issue is we've got an election coming up in less than two weeks, and we'll see if that changes anything or not. Yeah, we can hope. We can hope. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I'm hoping that this works because I think it would change the culture of the council and government, and people who surround the city won't be so left in despair about what's going in the, on in the city of Flint. And, you know, everything that goes on governmentally-wise there in the city of Flint affects all of the surrounding communities. Well, it's, it, the, the, the reputation of the city of Flint came up at the meeting last week of the reapportionment commission when um, Matt Smith introduced a map where he isolated the city of Flint 
completely from the rest of the county and made some terrible <laughs> yeah. disparaging remarks about the city and and the people that live there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, the the last the last week of September in, on, into the first of October, I had all of the candidates running for city council on the show. Eric Mays was the first one on uh, September 28th during the 9 o'clock hour. If anybody wants to you know, look it up in the, the show's archives uh, at the website. Um, Eric has always been singled out, or, or has often been singled out, as at the root of dragging the meetings out over you know procedural considerations and and other things and i asked him about that and he said he doesn't intend to change <laughs> yeah well, i'm sure he won't it makes him start the show he's he's campaigning i mean in the sense that he would like to be council president and he sort of endorsed a a, a slate of candidates uh, about a half a dozen of them who are running, um, some of them challengers, some of them incumbents. And whether they win or not, we'll see. But uh, he's, he's made it fairly fairly clear that he'd like to be council president uh, if, if his people win. And, you know, there are people all over the county who uh, listen to Eric and read about him, all including his antics, but they still like the guy for some reason or another. Oh, he yeah, does people, constituent yeah. service. He, 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 he returns phone calls, and he's at all kind of public events. So, yeah, within his war, he, he was the top vote-getter, except for one unopposed person the last time around, uh, among all the council members. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, well you know, talking about people who live out in the county, like people from Montrose and Clio and Goodrich and all of those places, and Davison. I've heard some very complimentary things about uh, Eric uh, from the mouth of these people. Of course, they give him his criticism as well, but they also have something good to say about him. Even though well, he can't know, drive, him, he doesn't have directions on expressway. I saw him at a fundraiser for the YWCA a few years ago, and I went up to him and, and talked to him, and I said, you know, I, I often agree with you, on some of the things you say at the city council meetings, but I have to tell you, you're absolutely insane. And of course, he laughed. <laughs> you he laughed and he said, official, insane, do you? <laughs> he laughed and he said, he said, if you hadn't said that, I'd have known you were lying. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a sense of humor. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Funny. He's, uh, yeah, he he does have a good sense of humor, and and he actually does a lot of what he does intentionally. Yeah, <laughs> that's the assumption I make. He enjoys it. Well, it's well, I, I used to, I used to, I used to, and I joked with him one time that he should have carried his own uh, engraved handcuffs in his pocket since he got arrested <laughs> so many times. <laughs> well, I went to a he got up to sing. Well, I don't know, some hymn or something. He has a beautiful singing voice. Yes. He oh, he's got, he's he got a great voice. And, voice. And, uh, and, and the reason we know that is because we hear it so much. <laughs> yes. um, 
But yeah, I, I had a good friend who went to the same church he did. Yeah, he was he was the a great acquisition for their choir when he when he signed up for him. <laughs> the last time I heard something about Eric, I think, and this may be true or maybe just hearsay, but when he encountered a policeman, the first thing he did was put both hands together and stuck them up. <laughs> so here we go again. You guys might have heard that same story. <laughs> Well, the Republican-controlled Michigan legislature is seeking emails and other documents from Governor Gretchen Whitmer's administration related to the way state regulators handled escalating concerns with lead contamination in Benton Harbor's municipal water. Representative Ed McBroom, a Republican from Vulcan, the city, not Mr. Spock's home planet, sent the, <laughs> sent the records request to the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy, or EGLE, on Monday, October 18th. Among other things, it seeks correspondence about lead test results and the use of corrosion control in the city's water starting in January of 2019 when Whitmer, a Democrat, took office. Given what happened in Flint, why not go back even further? Guys, remember, <clears throat> we predicted that 10 years ago, <clears throat> we predicted that other cities will rise to the occasion. And, um, yeah, and yeah you're absolutely uh, right, Henry. We've been talking about that since yeah. we first started talking about the water crisis in Flint, is when are we going to start hearing from other cities around the state? But the question is, and, and the timing of the information they're requesting, um, is... Is this a case where the Republicans in the legislature are trying to make Gretchen Whitmer the new Rick Snyder? Of course. Of yeah, course. I, but Rick Snyder okay. wasn't all that bad, guys. So Gretchen <laughs> being in that image is pretty good. And I think it's up to Whitmer to respond more effectively. I mean, she's, she's going to... Yeah. Isn't she visiting Benton Harbor yesterday or today? So I think she needs to respond, respond more effectively than Snyder did, because it could it could end up haunting her as well. Yeah, yeah, you got to get on it right now. If there's anything that the Flint, uh, Flint water crisis has taught us, respond quickly and respond to the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's well, taught. You know, us. I, I read a Facebook posting yesterday from one of my Facebook friends who lives in Flint, and he said that that when people come up and say to other people like, "How's the water in Flint?" and then they start laughing. Um, that the the subject, even though it's a terrible subject, has become the butt of a joke. And um, I, it must be people who don't live in the city, of course, but it has to become something that is no longer seen by people who don't live in Benton Harbor, who don't live in Flint, as something that is very, very serious. And I hope that our governor treats it as seriously as it is. Well, the the other lesson learned in the Flint water crisis, and, and this is going to be a concern going forward with Benton Harbor and possibly other cities around the state, um, is how quickly it becomes political. And and yes. uh, and also, there are racial implications, and, and how should those be yes. met yeah. and, and addressed? Anyway, we have to take a break here, but we'll uh, come back with more 
Armchair Politics with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter joined by Bobby Clayton Walton after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Armchair Politics is going to hell. Hell, Michigan, that is, and you are invited. On October 27th, Wednesday before Halloween, Armchair Politics will be broadcasting live from 9 a.m. to noon from the Hell Saloon in Hell, Michigan, near Pinckney. This will be our first in-person meeting of the Tom Sumner Program's weekly roundtable armchair politics since the beginning of the pandemic. Join me and roundtable regulars Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right, plus more on Wednesday, October 27, 2021, starting at 9 a.m. at the Hell Saloon. Armchair politics is going to hell, and you can too. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller someone you don't know your personal information or your money. 
If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue uh, this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner Program with roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter joined by political operative Bobby Clayton Walton. Governor Gretchen Whitmer vetoed bills Friday that would have established a timeline for the state's elections panel to review initiative petitions and shifted to county clerks the authority for canceling voter registration for people who had died. Both were part of a broad GOP-led bill package that supporters argued would restore faith in the electoral process, but Whitmer and many other critics argued the measures perpetuate conspiracies and misinformation in an effort to prevent some people from successfully voting. My question is, do voting rules and regulations need tweaking? How complicated does voting need to be? No, they don't need tweaking at all. We didn't have fraud in the last election, and it was well run. Yeah, in fact, I, I've often argued that I, I would give credit to the election workers during the pandemic. They have responded very effectively to a number of last-minute changes and, you know, all the things that happened during the pandemic. And as I say, I've long said this is probably the most honest election we've ever had. After all the recounts and audits and court challenges, that when Bush came to shove, it's probably more honest than any, any other election we've ever had. So, I mean... All, all these bills that are trying to <laughs> trying to tighten up the rules are mainly a, a partisan effort to to make it a little tougher to vote absentee. Yeah. Well, guys, see, I I I take a look at it from a different point of view. I believe that there are fallacies on both sides of that argument, and we need to come to grips so we resolve the difference in what we believe from both sides. Until that is resolved, we will always have this feud and nothing will change. <clears throat> but there were some things that Republicans say that were irregular. And do I believe it? Yes. And do I think that we should change them? We should admit them first and then change them. Even where Republicans made mistakes, I think they need to come clean, put the t- arguments on the table, and let other people uh, uh counteract their arguments or help to resolve it so that's no longer a position. And maybe that's impossible in a democracy. Maybe people will always prevail with their own sentiments and stuff. But that's what we need to do in order to resolve this problem on the voting. Henry, I'm going to challenge you on that. You're making this a partisan issue. I I didn't make it a partisan issue. It's there. It doesn't sides. need to be a partisan I said, issue. I said it both sides. That's I, right, I and you're making plainly. I I clarified that. It's not. It's not. both sides. It's not both sides. Either we have the right to vote, and we have the right well, to vote. I'm not going to argue that because that doesn't make sense to me. 
we have the right to vote, and we either vote and make it possible for people to vote legally and easily. And the, the laws that have been proposed and the questions that are on the petition take away from people who might have difficulty anyway their right to have absentee ballot, and there is a much in there that is designed to make it easy to discard votes because check this box, check that box, check that box. They're unnecessary, and they're probably just going to make any election that we have in the future a big mess. Plus, uh, you know, I'm up. not arguing for one side or the other. I made that clear. I wasn't arguing for one side or the other. There are not two laying sides. On the table I'm telling you. that there, there are, are irregularities from both sides. And Please we tell need to me recognize that. And if Please you are ready are. to recognize that, you're not ready to solve the problem. Because you haven't told me what the irregularities are. It's in the paper every day. Republicans are coming up and say, yeah, this is true. And it's being found to be true. Uh, well, you so know, I think we, the thing is, in a nation of 300 million people and 150 or 60, 70 million voters, there were errors made, but they were darn few and they didn't affect anyone. Yeah, I know. There were there. few, but you, oh. you're right. This is where I want to go with my argument. I want some kind of, at least, uh, meeting at the middle, that there were irregularities. We can't become a better nation with these uh, uh, accusations out there laying at the heads and feet of people who have to make decisions or try to pull the country together. Well, even we if we admit that. Are the accusations factually based? Well, that's what we have to... That's Again, why we it, depends on what, it, it depends on what I news source you read. I think the already made that decision. It, it, well, it, I don't know where you're going. I don't understand your argument. No, I, I, think, I think the real loss is the loss of trust in the whole system. I mean, have we ever right. had a president who lost an election and then went around for a year claiming that he won. I mean, we've had a lot of, you know, dicey elections over the past 200 years, but I, I cannot recall any situation where a, a, a candidate, a, a president, having lost the election, went around for a year later still claiming that he had somehow won. Uh, and, and that really erodes trust in the whole system. That's the real damage, I think. Yeah. Well, even even if you, as I would like to see happen, went back to you know, filling out paper ballots with number two pencils and having them counted by hand, somebody's dog would still eat their homework. Oh, sure. sure and yeah, and there are going to be flaws. There are going to be glitches. And I think Henry's point is trying to say that, you know, both sides like to accuse the other side of being the culprit. My problem is, is that there was no mistrust until somebody raised the issue. And once you get people to doubt the validity of something, yeah. it's really hard to convince them that, that there isn't a problem there. And that's, that's why that's I the, asked the question. Yeah, that's the theme of my next East Village column <laughs> at that very point. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why I said, how, first of all, how complicated does voting need to be? And the other, and that speaks to what Bobby said about, you know, having all these boxes to check and all of this stuff where people can make a mistake and the ballots can be thrown out. But did the rules need fixing in the first place? No. You know, that's, that, was, yeah. that was my original question. I, 
I think we had, I think we did a pretty good job of conducting our elections. Were there problems? Were there precincts where African Americans were discouraged from voting by various tricks and so on? That's, that's politics. That's not procedure. I, by and large, if you went to the poll and you got your ballot and you voted, I've always been fairly confident that the, the votes were being done uh, pretty much fairly. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean there yep. weren't mistakes, and you should always check those mistakes and, and uh, make sure that they didn't impact the outcome. But that's that's what recounting is for. That's what record-keeping is for. And and we were doing that. Yep. It was a, well, it was a very clean, well-run election. The few errors that were there were statistically insignificant. And some of the stories you hear about the errors were ones that were corrected anyhow. That you know, the whole uh, things about Antrim County here in Michigan, uh, that was a big bubble that blew up for a while. But that was an error that was caught and corrected within an hour or so, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, it was a technical error. Yeah. Now, one of the things that, that I find interesting is this condemnation of uh, city clerks and county clerks for mailing out applications for absentee ballots yeah yeah see i don't have a problem with that that's just that's a mailer it's a postcard it says do you want an absentee ballot if you do do it this way to me that's a great way to promote the fact that there's an election coming up absolutely absolutely and like i told the committee when i testified it's a piece of paper it isn't valid. It doesn't have. It doesn't have the power of the vote. It's merely notifying people that all they have to do is fill this out and they can get a ballot. And if it went to the wrong address or it landed in the wrong hands, they couldn't get a ballot that they could cast if it went through the system that we currently have. The checks for all things. Yeah, that's why I, you know I, I I just couldn't understand where people were complaining about, um, you know these these uh, applications were going to uh, people who had moved, you know, going to wrong addresses, going to the houses of people who had died. Well, you know, so do applications to join AARP. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You, you just toss all, it with the junk mail. Exactly. <clears throat> but unless you can argue from an expense point of view that it is a huge waste of taxpayers' resources, there really isn't much else to argue. Yeah. And the fact is, many candidates have, say, uh, have over the years have sent out similar applications. I, I've received those from candidates reminding you if you want an absentee ballot, do X, Y, and Z. Uh, from from the the candidates' campaign campaigns periodically, right? And that was concerning me when I looked at the petition's uh, wording. Was would it prohibit me as a citizen from handing somebody an application for a ballot? Well, there's one concern that that that's that's, that's, that 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 
current proposal would limit volunteers from doing same things like that. At least one interpretation of that suggests that. Henry, are we? Are you still with us? Yes, I'm just listening. I, okay. Uh, well, I just I, I don't want you to think we're ganging up on you because no, these are Republicans there, there are making times, these claims. There are times when you need to know when to shut up. <laughs> Oh, boy, there are so many people that need to hear that, Henry. (laughs) Anyway, um, and and this is one of those times when we need to shut up because we have a top-of-the-hour ID we have to break for, but we'll be back with Part 2 of this week's uh, edition of Armchair Politics with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Bobby Clayton Walton. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 